Socket.io enables real-time bidirectional communication. But what does real-time actually mean? Today's guest is Guillermo Rausch, the creator of Socket.io, a widely used technology for client-server communication. We discuss the nature of real-time apps like Uber and Google Docs, and we talk about the API and the usage of Socket.io. Socket.io enables real-time, bi-directional, event-based communication. Guillermo Rauch is the creator of Socket.io. Guillermo, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. Happy to be here. Web applications often get described as, quote, real-time, and this can mean a variety of things, including just an empty buzzword. You have said that we don't have a unanimous definition for that term, real-time. What is your own definition? The traditional definition uh, in terms of engineering is you divide systems into soft real-time systems and hard real-time systems. However, uh, when it comes to the web, people have used the term real-time to mean a variety of things. Um, In the context of web applications in particular, it's been tricky to define it. So uh, a lot of times uh, applications have been called real-time when perhaps they update their data maybe every 20 seconds, every 30 seconds. Uh, As a matter of fact, the original Google Docs um, that came through an acquisition that Google made of a product called uh, Rightly, I believe, uh, I think it used to update their data every 30 seconds. And it did uh, successfully achieve a certain level of real-timeness or uh, concurrency between the participants, uh, much better perhaps than, you know, uh, emailing copies of Word documents as attachments. But then later on, a product called Etherpad came, and and I remember in their um, FAQ, they said they were really real-time, with like (laughs) emphasis on really. Uh, And they claimed that they updated their data very frequently, like perhaps between one and five seconds. So um, over time, as I was developing these ways of making it easier to create the systems that send data from server to browser and browser to server, I realized that the definition that made the most sense was um, one that incorporated two things. Uh, Your application has to be able to uh, self-update, which means there should be no uh, UI required, so like no refresh button, no pull to refresh, um, you know, no uncertainty on the user side that the data is updating by itself. So the traditional example here is chat applications because chat applications never incorporate like a refresh button um, to like get the newest messages. Uh, you never have that sort of uncertainty that uh, it's as recent as it is, as it can be, right? Uh, and the other thing is uh, real-time systems have to minimize latency. So uh, maybe you're polling every 100 milliseconds and your system can afford um, to pull it off, or maybe you've implemented server push so the server lets you know uh, as soon as there is data available that, um, okay, here it is, and, and, the, and the view renders it. But the, uh, the uh, bottom line is uh, a real-time assistant has to satisfy those conditions. Uh, the data has to update really, really, really fast and um, without th- requiring user interaction. Would you say that real-time is more about what the user perceives rather than giving the user a complete story about what the application state is? 
Yeah. Um, perception of speed is one of the most important aspects of this because um, the limit um, of transmission of information in the medium that we usually work with uh, is well understood. So, for example, to communicate uh, coast-to-coast in the United States, the best-case scenario uh, over fiber optics would be that you, you would have a latency of like 50 milliseconds or so. Uh, in a lot of applications, of course, uh, you can't achieve the perfect connectivity. You can't achieve, um, you know, like uh, the best conditions for the medium. So, you know, you end up with like um, scenarios where like it takes you, you know, 300, 600 seconds to like send a packet over. Uh, but in, from the perspective of the user, they know that they committed their data to the system. So, for example, if you're, chat, if you're in a chat application and you write a message, um, you're giving the system your data and it might take like a second to get to the other participant, right? But you need some sort of instant feedback um, because you've introduced an input into the system. So uh, in one of my essays that I called uh, The Seven Principles of Rich um, Web Applications, I claim that you must have an immediate reaction to user input. So in the case of real-time applications, um, the uh, traditional approach to solve this problem is you insert the message right away and then you give it a certain... Um, for example, an acknowledgement or a, a tick, uh, or you improve the message, you enhance the message in some way to say, okay, it's been received by the other party, it's been received by our servers, etc. Um, so much so that, for example, Facebook Messenger nowadays uh, has a three-state icon next to the message. Uh, the first one is like an empty circle, then there's a tick inside, and then it gains a color. So if you think about this, it's a high level of sophistication um, that they're um, giving the user, I guess, because they're te- they're, there's this idea of several levels of, uh, I guess, um, how committed the message is all the way to the other user when they read it, right? So it's a very interesting uh, approach to solving this problem because you do show the message right away as soon as you like press enter or send, but then you enhance the message over time um, to communicate that it's actually been sent. This evolution of the icon, I think this was first in WhatsApp, and I think this was actually one of WhatsApp's killer features, was how it conveyed to the user where the message was in flight. So we're talking about UI stuff when it comes to to real-time, but um, there's there's a much bigger variety of, of, uh, of problems to be solved here. So real-time applications update with minimal latency, and their updates should occur automatically and uniformly without requiring any interaction. What are the big challenges to achieving this sort of uh, low-friction uh, application? Um, there are several. So from the perspective of achieving minimal latency, we always have to pick the best transport for the data. Um, So that means, for example, if you're using a modern browser and you're in a modern network with no proxies, no firewalls, um, no filters, uh, no airport, you know, Wi-Fi, you can usually choose a transport that's very efficient in terms of bandwidth usage and in terms of uh, the number of round trips 
that a message needs to make to be actually, or that the users need to make for them to establish the the connection. And uh, in this scenario, perhaps WebSocket or um, HTTP2 achieve this level of uh, sort of perfection. Um, or, you know, they're as good as we can um, get with uh, web technologies, for example. Um, but then in other scenarios, we have to, uh, with Socket.io, does, does this for you automatically, we have to pick um, the transport that just works because obviously an application that works uh, always is better than one that works fast only sometimes, right? So we do a lot of work to ensure that the best transport is picked uh, to make sure that the latency is as slow as it can be. But at the same time, we have to guarantee a very high level of reliability. That means dealing with uh, network disconnections and reconnecting automatically, uh, reconnecting in a way where uh, if tons of users are reconnecting at the same time or not, um, introducing a denial of service. Uh, so all of that is handled for you by Socket.io. And as a developer, you only have to worry about this idea of uh, emitting events back and forth. And an event is simply you give something a name and you attach a data payload uh, to it. And mm. then fr from the perspective of the application developer, they always have to make sure that in addition to uh, emitting these events, they take care of um, the, their UI state in such a way that, like I mentioned earlier, you commit the changes to the screen as soon as you can regardless of the network. Because the assumption is that the network is more unpredictable, uh, potentially slower. You always have to uh, think about what happens if um, the message got to the server, but then the server never got back to you because there was some error in the network. You even have to uh, consider this idea that you could be delivering a message more than once. So there are all these like, little tricky error scenarios that you have to account for um, in addition to setting up the real-time communication channel. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get to talking about Socket.io, but I want to talk about web development in general a, a little more. In a typical application, the server is the source of truth, and the client's web page is a partial reflection of that truth. This leads you to the belief that the server should push data to us. How did you arrive at that conclusion? Um, I arrived to it, uh, it's a very interesting question because I think it's, um, it's a key point in how most applications architectures should be. Um, even when you don't have a server, if you have distinct components in your page that are altering, uh, local data, you always have to have this idea that you must maintain a central source of truth and then all your components are listening or are subscribed to it. So the way that I arrived to this conclusion was um, from the perspective of UX as well. So I set up a, an application that only listened to incoming events from the network. And then the application, when you were interacting with it, you would, um, for example, make post uh, RESTful requests to the server. So I, never, I would never edit the local state of the, uh, of the application. I would never alter any uh, data directly. I would always wait for the server to respond um, through some sort of event. So what I, what I arrived to was this really nice uh, architecture where uh, no matter what change I was making, the entire application was always reflecting the latest known truth. Uh, and what this meant, for example, is 
uh, there is no, there are no race conditions, there are no edge cases. So if you have several parts of your application that are interested, for example, in showing the latest message uh, from the server, um, because you have several uh, chat UIs, let's say, or you have several notification um, counts, um, you'll never be out of sync because you're always listening on the server. You're not uh, introducing any partial truths uh, in the system that have to be reconciliated as you're listening to events from the server. So there are uh, many scenarios where uh, not using such an architecture, um, even the user notices that there are lots of inconsistencies. So one is, for example, when in certain UIs, um, maybe you see an unread message count that is not accurate. You've actually read all the messages and you're like, why does it still say one? Or maybe the notifications counts are out of sync where the uh, window title says there are one unread emails, and but then a certain other part of the UI says there are two. Um, and the uh, most common culprit in this kind of scenario is that you're introducing local changes. Uh, so you, maybe you've subtracted from one notification count, but you um, forgot to uh, subtract from the other one. Whereas when you're listening to events, perhaps from the server or even like a local uh, event emitter that you set up, it's much harder to make uh, such a synchronization mistake. So in, in, a, in a real-time application, it's important to support reconnection because a user on a mobile device, for example, can have really transient connections. What are some typical problems that developers encounter when they're dealing with connectivity issues? When it comes to handle um, connection problems, first of all, uh, I would say detection is the most important one. Um, depending on what context you're in, for example, if it's uh, a native application um, or if it's a web application, you can learn about being disconnected uh, faster. So in the case of native applications, the operating system usually has APIs where they're constantly pinging a source of, um, let's let's call it like a ping server or a DNS testing server. So they're constantly using several uh, ways to verify that you're connected, um, and then they display, for example, your connect uh, your connection state on an, on the menu bar icon or whatever. Uh, so, as a developer, you always have to make sure that you can um, learn about this global disconnection as soon as possible. In the case of um, the web, sometimes um, RESTful requests or XHRs start failing with a specific code that tells you the connection is completely down. So by doing that, you can also improve the messaging that you give to the user. You can almost conclude with a certain level of certainty that is there a complete internet connection that's down as opposed to your host being down. Um, so... Uh, in the former case, you would say, please check your internet connection. In the latter, you would say, um, we're trying to reconnect, um, uh, please wait. So the, the important uh, piece here is, if you follow this idea that uh, your entire application is listening on incoming events and the data always updates itself, you have to be very mindful of reconnections because you don't want to insert uh, uncertainty into the system. Uh, the user has to have this idea that the data is alive. Communicating that there is an internet problem is very important to that effect, especially when they know that they're expecting some sort of feedback 
from the server and it's just not coming. They must, uh, they probably start distrusting whether the data is up to date or not. So there are certain APIs that allow this and uh, the messaging uh, and paying attention to your UI is key. You have to always, when you're designing an application, when you're thinking about how the product works, incorporate uh, this idea of thinking about errors, thinking about reconnections into your system. Uh, as an example, uh, I wrote this essay called Pure UI, where you start thinking about designing as creating different states that a component can be in. If when you're exploding, you're doing that explosion of states, may- maybe you're doing that in your uh, design program or you're doing that on a whiteboard, you must account for error states and reconnection states when you are designing. So if you have different boxes where you're putting your different states, like uh, the user is logged in, the user is inserting a message, the user is befriending someone, always think about actually that action might fail. One of the things that I've been thinking about lately is in the future, design programs might want to incorporate this idea of guiding you through what you're actually missing in your design. Why? We know that whenever the network is involved, failures can occur. There's no such thing as a perfect uh, never fails network, right? So every time you're thinking about transitioning from states, if the network is involved, then absolutely you have to account for an error. And nowadays, uh, design programs don't enforce this. Um, n- not even developers enforce this because sometimes they choose to not handle errors at all. Um, and sometimes you're oblivious to the other levels of error handling that you could be doing. For example, this idea of global error handling when uh, the connection is not uh, working well. You have to notify the user with a sort of some sort of global banner or something that says, you know, uh, nothing is working around. Right the internet is uh, disconnected. Yeah, I, I like this idea of giving the user some UI cues about their connectivity and how that might be affecting the application. So I I watched a talk from you, and you explored some of the aspects of TCP that developers should keep in mind as they're developing these, what they call real-time applications, often single-page applications. And many developers, including myself, don't know much about how TCP works. What are the important consequences of TCP that we should be thinking about as we are trying to build real-time applications? Yeah. Um, As I continue to explore this idea of real-time applications, I realized that looking at latency in a particular interaction is not sufficient. So, for example, you look at how long it takes to send a message, but you can't forget to look at how long it takes to load the application to begin with. So this total view of latency is one that I incorporated in thinking about real-time systems. Uh, so it allows you to explore the entire experience from the edges. The edge that most uh, web applications first face, for example, is that you load the website or you get a URL and you click it. So that's where you have to start analyzing the real-timeness of your application as it relates to minimizing latency. The example that's crucial there is when the page is first loading, let's assume that the user has never been to the website before, that no tabs were open to this website before, then the connection is first established. So a TCP connection is established from your computer to the um, 
target host. Um, and here is when TCP has this idea of congestion control. So TCP tries to start slow and then incrementally become faster as a way of protecting against congestion and protecting against too much traffic that can actually not be handled, uh, preventing against users sending more data than the server can handle, etc. So since TCP starts slow, you have to be very mindful of that initial payload, page load time even more so than before. Because now you know that if your page was really heavy, uh, now the user is not only not only as the user have to download a big page, but it's actually also starting slow. So it comes down uh, as a as a cue uh, for developers. It comes down to focusing on the first fourteen kilobytes. Uh, that's the uh, traditional recommendation that will work in most networks. Will work well well with most setups and browsers. If you focus on the first fourteen kilobytes. Um, and you have to make sure that you deliver the data that the user was interested in in those 14 kilobytes. If you're creating a new site, that means that in the first 14 kilobytes, you probably want to have the first portion of the content of the news story. If you're developing a chat application and you're linking to a specific conversation, you want to load that conversation. So single-page applications here, uh, in, many, in many cases, have been at fault because they take too long to load initially. They sometimes request the data only after they've been loaded. And in other cases, they you know just display a white screen until everything loads. So it's like kind of like this really awkward um, flickering effect. But it all comes down to you have to make sure that you load that initial uh, payload of the data as soon as possible. So now that we've discussed real-time in general, let's talk about Socket.io. What is Socket.io? Socket.io is a little library, both for servers and clients in a variety of programming languages, that allows you to model your communication as events in a bidirectional channel. This means that server can emit events to clients and client can emit events to servers. As a matter of fact, now we're exploring the possibility between clients emitting events to clients directly through peer-to-peer communication that will be extremely relevant in IoT. But the bottom line is you can model communications as events which are, they contain a name, like some sort of identifier that gives uh, the action its, its meaning or its purpose. And then there is a data payload that can be any sort of uh, JSON data structure, it can be a string or it can be binary data as well. So uh, a lot of you are even doing uploads over this system where they have a much more fine-grained control over how much data is sent, uh, how big the chunks, etc. So is the socket of socket.io, does that refer to a web socket? Yeah, so socket.io is transport agnostic. It started with WebSocket. Uh, just being specked out, and we had a technique for mimicking it, which was called long polling. So the nice thing about long polling is it has very similar performance characteristics. It's not as fast, and it always works. So it just it's almost like a technique for using AJAX in a very creative way. So 
Socketio takes that as a starting point because, as I mentioned earlier, as a focus on reliability is one of our priorities, then we want to make the connection always work in the context of any client, any network, any proxy that might be in place. And then we try to upgrade to the most suitable transport in terms of performance, which could be WebSocket. So Mm. uh, we've extended this idea. And since from your perspective, you're just uh, emitting events back and forth, the transport becomes less relevant. So, and we can basically hide that complexity uh, from you and we can innovate also in what transport we can add in the future. So WebRTC allows us to transport data directly from peer to peer, which in some cases can have tremendous latency advantages uh, or privacy advantages. In other cases, we could explore uh, Bluetooth as a medium. So the bottom line is, the transport is less important when you're developing the application. What you care about is the data. So we've created Socketio to make real-time data flow as fast as possible and as reliable as possible. In Socket.io, the client and the server both have an API. Can you describe those APIs for the client and the server? Yeah, so the way that you subscribe to events is very similar uh, um, to the DOM. So, you know, when you do document.addEventListener, click, you're listening uh, for incoming data. In this case, the incoming data is the position of the click, what element it was um, on, etc. So from the server side or the client side, since it's bidirectional, you say socket.on, and you listen in a certain event. And then to emit on the DOM, usually the emit is done on your behalf by the browser uh, because you, you click and the event is uh, emitted for you. But uh, the DOM calls that API trigger event. So if you wanted to create a synthetic event, you would say document.trigger event, click, and then like 20 arguments. And uh, on Socket.io, the equivalent would be socket.emit. So you can say socket.emit to the server, or the server can say socket.emit to the client. The server has an advantage in that the server is aware of many clients. So the server has this idea of broadcasting. You can say, I want to emit an event to a room. So you can say, this half of the clients are in this room, this half of the clients are in this room. Uh, Or you can say, I'm going to emit an event only to people that have been authorized. So you might want to use this idea of channels or rooms to uh, do uh, authorization. So you say, only users that have been uh, put in the group admins will receive these Um, alert, for example. So the bottom line is the API is very simple. It's just events, but the server has um, the idea that it can broadcast to everyone, to a group, or to just one user. In web application development, we often want a persistent connection between the client and the server. What are the challenges to this, and how does Socket.io help achieve it? The challenges are many. So um, first of all, uh, a lot of the persistent connection transports are very low level. So for example, WebSocket doesn't give you the flexibility to send JSON even. You have to almost always like create a little protocol on top where you say, uh, I'm going to always send this type of JSON packet with a certain like name, etc. 
um, the other thing that it doesn't do for you is reconnecting. So sockets by uh, default uh, are very simple. They um, have an error state, they have an opening state, and they have a closing state. But there's no such thing as it'll reconnect, it'll give me a notice when it's reconnecting so that it can tell the user, etc. So socket.io makes that persistent connection a lot more um, let's uh, let's say developer friendly because it, we're thinking about how to use that persistent connection for building real applications. In a talk that I saw on YouTube, you emphasized events and how events play into the socket.io model. Could you explain how events are at the center of push-based systems? Yeah, um, when you open a persistent connection you usually have this idea that you're sending bytes, like just like raw bytes over the wire. Um, in the case of WebSocket, it started even only being able to send strings, like uh, UTF-8 encoded strings. So you, you could only send a message that said like, hello, or any, or perhaps a number. But there was no, um, there was no way for you to like send a packet unless you create an object, you serialize it, and then on the other side, you deserialize it and you inspect that object and you say, well, what is this user trying to do? Are they trying to send a message? Are they trying to like uh, uh, say that they're connected? Are they trying to log out? So the idea is events become the organization of this uh, byte stream o- over this persistent connection. They're very key also to the architecture that I mentioned earlier that if you're listening on incoming events, you're listening uh, on this one source of truth, and it makes your application much easier to reason about, uh, as opposed to you performing intermediate data changes uh, in your local state and then um, you know, like trying to reconciliate later on when you hear from the server. One always has to be aware that conflicts can occur when you have disparate um, sources of data, right? Kind of like when Git you push and you say, oh no, something changed and you have to like work on the conflict. So events uh, provide a very nice organization over persistent connections. And that's why we chose them. We think they're also a very fundamental way of thinking about systems. Uh, you can find uh, the event emitter on the DOM. You can find the event emitter um, on most other, uh, even like 20-year-old GUI systems. Events are very um, easy to grasp very easy to understand way of looking at the looking at our world even. So I'd like to give a small example of the type of application that socket.io makes easier. Um, so let's talk about a chat application. In the past, a chat application might have been built using PHP or the LAMP stack, and there were certain difficulties uh, in using that type of stack. So could you give uh, give us an idea of what those difficulties were and how Socket.io uh, improves on the past model of client-server interaction in something like a chat application? Yeah, so in the case of a PHP chat application, you almost have no way of this idea of sending something from the server to the client. So an example would be if you receive a message from a certain user and you, you handle that with, say, message.php and you get the data about the message, 
let's say that the message says, oh, this is targeted for a private uh, DM to this other user. So as a server, and this is why I mentioned earlier, the server becomes usually the first to know about the truth changing or the first to know about the data changing, right? Other than the user that sent it. So in the ideal, in an ideal world, the server would be the one that sends that message directly to its recipient. And that's where the first complexity arises with a model like PHP's. There is virtually no way when you get um, to use the LAMP stack that you can say, okay, now give this message to this user. You have to necessarily wait for that user to request it later on. So not only are you starting to pay a latency penalty there, you start to pay uh, an engineering penalty because now you have to model your client as let's wonder about what messages are coming every number of seconds, right? So you have to build all of that yourself. Whereas with Socket.io, you just say broadcast this message to this one client or to this one room. And then you know that the minute that those, the instant that those clients connected over the socket, they subscribe to those messages and they're going to come as events. So that's where the bidirectional part of it comes and it's such an improvement in terms of performance and also it'll make things easier to write for you Mm. you are able to send events from the server to the client and not just from the client to the server in a way in a world that's moving a lot towards push as opposed to pull in almost every aspect of communications marketplaces even the economy you have to consider that by switching this around, you improve your architecture, you improve your responses, and you improve the user experience. So you've said that the mission of Socket.io is to make real-time apps possible in every browser and mobile device, blurring the differences between different transport mechanisms. And you've touched on this earlier in our conversation what are some of the challenges to getting this consistency across different platforms? I would say the main challenge has to do with every um, operating system, every browser, every mobile device will have different networking APIs. So that's the first one. You have you know to implement different APIs for different um, configurations. But then it's not just that particular device or that particular OS that will determine that how the communication is going to work. There's always the opportunity for other layers to come in later on and actually ruin your uh, communication experience. So, for example, if the connection is unencrypted uh, and you have a proxy that doesn't understand a certain transport, or doesn't like connections of a certain length, or uh, there are many different failure scenarios that can be introduced by, for example, corporate proxies, then it's not even just about you picking the right API and making it work correctly. You start to realize that there could be errors that are introduced by other layers of the stack. So that's why we take this multi-transport approach where we can seamlessly transition between transports if the network is not behaving correctly. So it's not just about making the decision to choose the right API. It's also about 
how is this API interacting with the external medium? And that, I would say, is the uh, biggest complexity. For example, when we worked on peer-to-peer uh, event systems, we realized that we can't always achieve a peer-to-peer communication, so we use the cloud as a fallback. And in this way, what we, what we get is a very re- reliable communication experience for the user and more input to the developer about the potential latency characteristics of the medium. So if you're achieving a peer-to-peer connection, you can communicate that to the user in some way oh, because, again, it could have privacy implications as well. And if it falls fall back to the cloud, your application continues to work. So this is the uh, promise that we give our users with Socket.io. We uh, always make it so that the connection works. So I want to talk some about what you're working on today. Um, you're working on a product called Micro. Could you tell me more about this? Yeah, so uh, Micro is our latest uh, open source project that um, allows the microservice architecture. Basically, when you write a service nowadays, you tend to conflate a lot of different routes, a lot of different behaviors, a lot of different concerns into a single process or a single repository or or a single monolithic application. So for example, if you have a post slash payments um, API call and you have a post slash logout call, you tend to put that in the same place. Micro is an approach for writing services where the concern is a single API endpoint. So instead of writing you know, a monolithic application, then you make that listen on a single port. Let's say you, you put it on api.yourcompany.com. The approach that over time we've found works really well is every API endpoint ends up being its own independent HTTP service. And then we use um, a technology like Nginx, for example, to route requests to the different microservices. So from the developer that's querying your API, they think they're going to api.yourcompany.com slash payments, but underneath it's going to its own specific microservice, perhaps hosted at like payments.yourcompany.com. So by putting every API endpoint into its own microservice, what you get is greater debuggability because you can like take a look at a specific service per service um, approach, like for to like look at the logs, for example, it's easier to test because now you write tests in your repository only for that API endpoint. I've seen a lot of companies in it where you know ninety percent of their traffic goes to a single endpoint, so it doesn't make sense to you know. Sometimes you don't even want to look at the logs from others, uh, and finally, something that's uh, really awesome is you can scale these microservices independently. So you might need 100 nodes for a certain API endpoint. You might need one for another. And finally, error debugging becomes a lot easier because if a failure happens on on a given microservice, it has no bearing whatsoever in another one. And you can restart them independently. You can then later on debug them independently. Uh, Micro makes it so that when you write your code, uh, if you've written Node.js or JavaScript before, all you do is you export a function that takes 
the request and the response as parameters. And that's all there is to it. Um, mm. the, the way that we do this is because with ECMAScript uh, 7 and with certain features introduced in ECMAScript 6, we've gained uh, the async and await keywords that drastically simplify how we manage asynchronous uh, services. The other thing to consider when you look at microservices nowadays or APIs nowadays is they usually involve calling other microservices or calling other APIs. So if you have a subscribe uh, endpoint uh, because you have a form or you sign up or whatever, you, it's likely that you're also going to um, send a, a subscription request to MailChimp, for example, or to other um, newsletter providers. So somewhere in your back and you're going to make an API call. The, the bottom line is there is usually asynchronous behavior happening in these uh, microservices. With the async and await uh, keywords, we make this code that used to be very gruesome to write that used to involve a callback soup because you had to like nest all these API calls and pass callbacks down uh, below, we basically make it seem like it's um, synchronous code while not tricking ourselves because you have to write, for example, await, dot, await request and you make your request. So you're, very, you're being explicit that you're performing an asynchronous request and um, your code like n looks a lot more sane because every line is describing the timeline of everything that's occurring in that particular API endpoint. And that ties really well into the architecture um, that I mentioned earlier on because from those microservices, you can now uh, use something that we call the socket emitter. You can launch... Broadcast and broadcast events from these microservices. And the Socketio servers become independent to scale from your HTTP endpoints. This brings a, a really great um, way of integrating things that were seemingly impossible to integrate before. Now you can emit Socketio events from any sort of backend node that you have, not just um, the one, you know, the one Node.js Socket.io server. And we think this architecture will make it possible to integrate real-time behavior to a lot of different uh, paradigms, including uh, like a PHP backend, uh, including Java backends, that by themselves cannot really uh, establish real -time, a real-time channel. We can basically plug a Socket.io node to it, and they can communicate seamlessly. So from the perspective of the user, they connect to the Socketio server, but uh, the Socketio server is receiving events that it will be sent along to the user from any um, other backend piece. So it could be a microservice, it could be uh, another Node.js service, etc. The bottom line is we've made this uh, idea of sending events possible from any backend node uh, that your um, application might have. Great. Well, uh, that's a really exciting development. Um, seems like a good place to close off. Um, thanks for coming on the show, Guillermo. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I'm following Micro closely, and I'm a big fan of Socket.io. So um, 
appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you.